Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For the first episode of 2020, Simon Austin has been speaking to England rugby coach Eddie Jones. The Australian talked about his philosophy on coaching, leadership, and life. Over to Simon. Eddie, thank you very much for joining us on the Training Ground Guru podcast. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure to be here, mate. And uh, Happy New Year. Have you had a good break? Uh, yeah, I did have a bit of a break. Went back to Japan, mate, so that was good. And uh, ready to go now, getting ready for Six Nations. Fantastic. And I know I've, I've just read your book, actually, and you said that you always like to look forward, not back. I was just wondering, have you watched the Rugby World Cup final back now? Uh, no, I haven't watched it, mate. I, I, uh, it's still very clear in my head, so the video is still running around in there. Will you do any sort of analysis on it with the players, do you think? Uh, we'll have a, more of a psychological and emotional debrief rather than a tactical debrief. Because I know you used Corrine Reid, didn't you, before to, to get over the, the trauma of the 2015 World Cup. Would, would you do a similar thing again? Uh, unfortunately, she's now moved to be vice chancellor of Victorian University, so she's unavailable. But we've got another sports psychologist to help us with the process. Right. Oh, okay. Who is that, Eddie? Uh, Andrea First, who's been working with uh, the English women's hockey team. Right. Okay. And you think it's very important to have a specialist in that area? Uh, I think more so these days than ever. Um, just having that skill set within your uh, coaching setup, I think, is absolutely vital. Something which really came across in your book was how inquisitive you are and how you're always looking to other sports, other industries, um, for any kind of advantage you can get. Have, have you spoken to anyone new since since the World Cup? Uh, the only I've spoken to a number of coaches. I spoke to uh, had a good meeting with Danny Carey. The uh, English uh, men's hockey coach now. Um, uh, he's been the main one. Um, over the next period of time, I'll speak to more people. I spoke to Bob Dwyer, who was a former Australian uh, rugby coach, uh, back won the World Cup in '91. Um, they've basically been doing a lot of reflection and and obviously trying to work out why we weren't at our best. I mean, obviously, I know your connection with Bob, I think, going all the way back to Randwick, was it, in uh, Australia? That's correct, yeah. Was he still able to offer a very fresh and helpful perspective then on, on what happened? Well, he's able to offer a different perspective, which is always useful. Definitely. And I know you've, you've looked to football as well, haven't you? Our website is primarily concerned with football. Um, and I was very interested in the contact you'd had with Pep Guardiola when he was at Barcelona and Bayern. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that again, how that came about. Yeah, well, back in 2012 or 2013, I just started coaching Japan and we had a, a physically small team. And I've always watched football, particularly uh, had an interest in it. And I was fascinated how Barcelona played and I was fascinated how Spain played because they had quite small teams and not that the physicality in football is as important as in rugby but it's still a factor so uh, then through my connection with Adidas I was able to make contact with uh, Pepe Bayern um, and went over and watched them train during the day which was fascinating because I'd watched a lot of football coaches coach and he was by far the most 
engaged, enthusiastic, really drove the players hard. And then we had a, a meeting uh, at night um, about how he achieved his ball movement with Barcelona, some of the context some of the concepts he looked at. Um, some of them were relevant to us, some of them weren't. Um, and also how inquisitive he was about other sports, looking at, at, at you know, basically any invasion sport you can to see whether you can pick up one or two things that may help you play your game better. Yeah, that's fascinating. And were you able to incorporate that into your, your game plan and your training? Uh, well, it was nothing specific as such. It was just the concept certain concepts certainly changed my approach to training having watched uh, Pep run the session um, felt that there was a lot to like about what he did I know he follows a basically a loose tactical periodization model and um, we've come up with our own rugby periodization model I also went to Qatar and met uh, uh, Jose Villamura I think his name is um, and had a long meeting with him about tactical periodization. And we also got uh, Raymond uh, Verheinen, uh, the Dutch coach, to come in and talk about his version of, of uh, football periodization. And that's probably been the major change over the last five years we've made in the way we coach the team. Because I actually heard you talk about that at SoccerX in uh, 2017, and I interviewed Alberto after that, which was really, really yeah. interesting. Um, what were kind of the main things you take from that? You do most of your physical work within the, the tactical session. Is that the main thing? Yeah, no, really it's about how you set the week up, um, periodising the week, making sure that each day's got a, a certain physical and tactical theme, um, being very measured about about the loading within that, and then doing all of our physical work, or a high percentage, probably 95% of our physical work through the game model. So making sure that we create training that replicates the game model and then having the physical parameters we want stressed to be right for the game. And, and that you have noticed big improvements from doing that? Uh, well, what I've found generally is the team's more consistent because the tactical periodization model, I think, gives you great consistency in your preparation and makes sure that you keep reinforcing the game. And it also makes sure that you keep reinforcing the important key physical parameters of the game. And what I've found is that the teams that I've coached since that period, Japan and England, have been more consistent in their ability to be able to play with energy and with tactical clarity, which uh, a little bit of, 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 of the same thing, uh, in, a, in a funny way, uh, in games. Is it hard as a national coach because you haven't got the players all the time? Can you still do what you want to with them physically? Uh, it's harder, mate. It's much harder. Um, and we're always compromising because we've only got a short period of time. Um, but it allows us the, the methodology to get them in the best condition we can. I think we showed at the recent World Cup when we had a 10-week preparation, uh, we were able to get the players in physically equipped to play the game because at the end of the day, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get the players physically equipped to play the game. Yeah, definitely. And I was very interested in what you said at Socrates as well about the restrictions that the mind can put on you. And sometimes you could kind of push players harder than they think they can go. Yeah, well, I think 
that's probably been exacerbated recently by the influence of sports science. I think sports science, particularly I've found in, in the UK, has put parameters on what you can do. Um, you know, players can only run this amount. They can only run a certain number of days in a row. All of those sort of things. No one really knows. Um, and the, the greatest feedback for your training is the game. And so, again, uh, has anyone ever played the perfect game? No. So the limitations to the way you train are set by the fact that the traditions of, of sports science and thinking... And, you know, I know with Japan, you know, we had a side that hadn't won a World Cup game for 24 years. Their average score against the top 10 country was 85 nil defeat. Uh, we were able to change that around by breaking those traditions. You know, with Japan, we trained three times a day, 5 a.m., 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. for periods of time. And we and, and equipped the players to play the game at the pace and intensity we wanted to play. Now, that doesn't work with England. You know, with every team, it's different. Um, so whatever your your methodology is, you've got to then adopt it to the to the team and the players that you have. That is a huge debate in football at the moment. P- people saying the fact you can measure things, and the sports scientist might say you've hit your load for the day. We can't do any more. Whereas the coach wants to push beyond that, you know, and, and test the limits of the player. Yeah, well, yeah, I look at that example, and I don't know football, football that well, but. I, I remember when Klopp first came in because I was interested in him and they were saying, well, he can't train the players like he did at Barossa uh, and he got a lot of hamstrings injuries and there was a lot of criticism and, and they said he couldn't do that. It wouldn't work at Premier League. And now every team in the world wants to train like Liverpool, don't they? Yeah, he was able to have the courage to say this is the, this is the right way to prepare the team for the football we want to play. Um, and you will get some difficulties early because the bodies have got to adjust. But once the bodies adjust and become resilient to that type of training, then that becomes the norm and you'll see more teams wanting to train like Liverpool. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of red zones as well, isn't there? Would you push your players into that red zone? Uh, when it's appropriate, again, you know, we, we look at what what does it take to, to to get the player ready to play the game. So we might have one period in a game of rugby that goes for four minutes continuous. Um, so we need to make sure we prepare the players for, for that. And again, what is the red zone? Is that is that a red zone set by some sports scientists or it's a realistic red zone? So again, you just can't take that as, as being fact. You need to experiment. You need to have the courage to find out what you can do and what you can't do. It's like Roger Bannister, mate. You know, when he ran the four-minute mile, the medical journal said the body had disintegrated. Uh, next year, 12 people run the four-minute mile. And it's very interesting as well because uh, Verheyen has been one of the biggest critics of Klopp, actually. Um, and he's quite a divisive figure in football. But did, did you find it helpful when he came in? He was brilliant, mate. Intellectually brilliant. Uh, we picked up a lot from him. Yeah, we don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but we picked up a lot. And I know he can be... Yeah, a reasonably assertive and abrasive type character, and I'm sure he, <laughs> he rubs up some people the wrong way. Yeah. I've always been very interested in what you've said about leadership styles as well. And I know at Socrex and in the book, a big thing was you said English players kind of inherently like to be told what to do rather than to take the initiative and challenge and lead. 
And that, yeah, that was very interesting. Have you made big strides in that area, do you think? Uh, well, I think we've gone forward. Um, and again, you've got to be the courage to create situations where the leadership fails with the team. Um, and that's the best way for players to learn. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I think the education system of, of rugby particularly, I can't talk about football, but is to produce players that like to be told. You know, they go from a high school team where the coach dominates the team. Uh, they go into the academy, they're told what to do. And so they're never encouraged to actually think for themselves. And, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a real flaw in the way we prepare rugby players. And I think over the next period of time, hopefully that's going to change. Mm. Is that a kind of societal thing as well, do you think, aside from sports? Uh, I think it is, yeah, without a doubt. You know, because I think in a lot of ways the communication of the skills of, of young people these days are different than than they were and they obviously communicate a lot more electronically and uh, unfortunately you can't take an iPhone on the field. I still, still, still haven't seen a Premier League side with an iPhone on the field. I haven't seen a rugby side yet. So they've got to learn how to communicate and you've got to be able to teach them those skill sets to have effective communication. Because what's, what is leadership? Leadership's on the, ability, on, the, on the field, the ability to influence someone else's behaviour. Yeah, I, uh, I went and watched Liverpool play Barcelona in the Champions League semi-final and at Anfield you can see the field pretty uh, closely. I remember watching Barcelona, you know, they were getting beaten 1-0, 2-0, 3-0, 4-0. And there, it didn't seem to me at any stage that the players got together and they said, right, what are we going to do to fix this? They just allowed it to continue. And that's when you want your leadership to, to step forward and things get We've done quite a few pieces with Brian Ashton on the site, and uh, that's a big mantra of his. He's brilliant, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent. He's actually been in a few times, has he, to uh, training? Yeah, no, we've got him in a couple of times, pick his brains, and hopefully we're going to do it a bit more. And another thing, have you found that players are as resilient now and as kind of um, willing to take criticism or direct language? Uh, again, it's different now and you've just got to see how kids are parented now. Um, it's, it's a different world now. So I think the, the skill is still to get the message through, but rather than telling them or directing them, now it's more of a way of guiding them to where you want to get them. Yeah, because I was reading, uh, it's quite funny about, is it Troy Jacques, uh, uh, the Brumbies, and the, the stick you would give him back, yeah. back that time? You probably couldn't do that these days, mate. No, no. <laughs> do you have to have quite a toolkit as a as a coach to manage every player individually and differently, depending on their personality? Yeah, I think coaching's getting more complex, mate. Um, and I think because of that, you do have to have a greater greater skill set. And I also think you have to have a greater range of qualities within your coaching staff. Yeah. So you need to have guys, coaches, assistant coaches who are very analytic. You need to have assistant coaches who are very relationship-based. You need to have assistant coaches that have a nice emotional barometer about them. So all of those things are quite important. And has your style changed over the years as players have changed? Uh, massively, mate, yeah. Um, yeah, now... Before, you used to bang on the table quite quickly if you wanted to get something done. 
now you've got to really find the right time to do it. And again, you've got to find more ways of guiding the players to do what you want to do rather than telling them. What are your views on Maverick players? Um, so I've got a, uh, a quote from uh, Jorge Valdano who played with uh, Maradona. Yeah. And he was talking about how he likes a progressive approach and um, the individual can come ahead of the team sometimes if it's that good a player. Oh, 100%. Like, yeah, if you've got a player like Maradona or you've got a player like Messi, yeah, you've got to give them the, the licence to do what they're good at and accept that maybe a lot of what they do is outside the framework of, of the normal player and adjust your team to that. But they've got to be good enough players to do that, you know, and, and that's the trick. I remember at the Brumbies, we had a, a winger called Andrew Walker, who was our top try scorer for two years. Um, he was a difficult guy, um, but we went out of the way to make sure he could play for us because the players wanted him to play. Because the other part of the Mavericks, Simon, is the fact that if they're giving value to the team and the, the rest of the team sees how valuable they are, they'll accept those differences that they bring. But when they don't see them bringing value to the team but just um, taking away from the team, then it becomes a problem. Are those players very few and far between, do you think, by their very nature? Uh, I think you get runs of them, mate. You know, I was lucky in Australia, guys like, you know, a succession of guys like Andrew Walker, Joe Roth, um, brilliant players who are outside the system. George Smith. Um, and then, then you tend to get a run of where you don't have those players when you're a coach. And now, you know, with England, we've got a player like Johnny May who can score a try out of nothing. Um, and he is a little bit different. Um, so they're still there. Um, maybe it's getting harder for them to get through the system because of the strict parameters, as we spoke about in academies now, that they want everyone to, you know, fit the cookie cutter. They don't want players to go too far out of the system. I know in the book you um, you say you're asked about one player more than any other with England, with Danny Cipriani. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask about him now because um, yeah. we did an interview with him again on the site. And he, he seemed to chime with you, really, what you say about the player empowerment because he said that's very much how he works, you know, playing what's in front of him, not playing to the coach's plan necessarily. So I was quite surprised you didn't maybe see eye to eye or is that a bit simplistic, really? Yeah, I think that's a bit simplistic, I think. Yeah, I rate Danny as a as a player. I think he's a very gifted and talented player. But at the moment, he's not in our top two. Um, and it's as simple as that. Uh, we've got Ford and Farrell, who are both proven test winners. Yeah, Danny hasn't got a record of winning games at, at test level, uh, which is different from winning games at club level. Um, so he falls behind those guys in the ranking. Yeah. But would he be in contention for the uh, Six Nations a few weeks uh, ago? We're definitely watching him closely yeah. um, because he has got talent. Any player who's got talent is, is, is worth uh, pursuing and, and seeing how you can get a little bit more out of them. And you were talking about that mix of uh, skills within your coaching team. Um, and th there's been quite a lot of change, hasn't there, really, over the months and years within that team? It, do you like to keep it fresh and keep changing it? I've found the older I get, the more important it is to keep that coaching staff fresh, bringing new ideas in, 
Yeah, I've been lucky over the last period of time. I've had Steve Borthwick there as a, as a second man for six years. So that's the consistency. I like to have one person who's consistent. Then I like to bring new ideas, fresh ideas, new energy in. And I think the players like it more so. I think it's... Younger, younger players now tend to like new things a lot more than probably the previous generation of players because, again, you know... It's the way they're educated. They go to your website. You haven't got new podcasts on. They don't come back again, do they? Yeah, that's that's the reality. They move quickly now. Yeah, you put a poster on the wall that's paper. Uh, they look at it one day. They don't look at it the next day. Yeah, that's why when you go to the big shopping centres now, they're continually got changing commercials because that's the only way to capture people's imagination. Um and it's the same, I think, with coaching now. You've got to have the consistency of methodology and philosophy that's brought by one or two coaches, uh, preferably two. And then I think around that, you bring new people in to bring fresh ideas, new ideas that add to the mix. That's very interesting about the attention span, I guess, of the modern person, the modern player. Has that affected the way then you would do things like your preparation and also your analysis after a game? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, we have a general rule that we don't have team meetings any longer than 15 minutes. Uh, we'll try to make sure we've only got three key points in the meeting. Um, and generally, again, try to make sure that those three points are expressed in, in as many mediums as we can. Uh, in, in visual, in auditory, possibly in movement. Uh, some players like to write, so give them the opportunity to write. Um, I think the way you create your learning environment for, for players now is quite important to, to ensure that you get maximum transfer of information. I know in football, the players actually are getting involved more in the actual analysis. So they'll look at video clips um, on huddle who were the sponsor of this podcast. Um, is it the same in rugby? Are they embracing technology in that way? Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, yeah, it's an important part. And there's a great... I don't know whether you've written that, uh, read that book, Astro Ball. No. Uh, there's a great example of that in there where they talk about how the Astros were going to play against, I think it was the Rangers. And the Rangers had this Japanese pitcher, Darvish, who'd been cutting teams up but one of the older players went to the video and then worked out that when he pitched his fastball, he twisted the ball, I think it was three times. And as a result, when the, when the batters went in against Darvish in the next game, they, they cut him up. Um, and then Darvish tried to change what he did because he worked out, they'd worked out what he'd done. And, and that made him think more, which took away some of your energy. So that, yeah, those those small points that you can get from analysis has got to be driven by the players. And the more that they come in that, as they are, because they're so um, so sophisticated now on, on uh, electronic equipment and, and data, that that's only going to evolve even further. And I suppose it's something you have to embrace, isn't it, really, as a coach? Oh, you have no choice, mate. Otherwise, you get left behind. I, was, I mean, another huge area in football is data. And you talk about that in the book again, um, the huge amount of data coming through. And you actually, didn't you hone it down to your own metrics with uh, James Tozer and Gordon? Yeah, yeah. No, we came up with our own winning metrics, which were pretty um, 
accurate because, um, again, you get so much information now and you can see it in football, it's starting to evolve, you know. Like you hear the commentators talking about how many kilometres the players run. Um, all of that thing's going to become, as 5G comes in, that'll become even more so. That the amount of information out there will be enormous. But you know, the skill of the, the coach is to understand what's really important, what really makes a difference, and then how you can transfer that information to make sure the players understand it. And it's about tailoring it for your style of play as well as a team. Yeah, 100%. You know, you've got to understand how you win games of rugby with, or win games of football with your team, with your players, and then what are going to be the important metrics of playing that game to win like that. I think some people get a little bit fearful about uh, data and about tech, but do you think human intuition and judgment is always going to be crucial no matter what? Uh, it's definitely a combination of the two. Um, and and that's where experienced coaches are important. I'm sh- you see it in football now, you know, the number of coaches that coach uh, up until their, their 50s and 60s because they've accumulated all this experience, all this intuition, and they're able to work out what's important and what's not important. And I, I guess that was the thing. I was very interested that you went and met Sam Underhill when he was 19 and at university because you'd seen something in him, you know, and that is that human intuition again. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%, yeah. When you went to meet him, were you also wanting to find out about him as a character as, as well as just speaking to him? That's very much so, you know. Any player I select, I, li- I like to if possible, have a one-on-one meeting beforehand just to find out a little bit about themselves. Do you look for that drive in someone that you've clearly got yourself? Yeah, no, you want players who are driven. Not every player has that, but that's that's what you want. You want players who are, who are driven. You want players who like to train, who like to train tough, uh, because you, then you know they've got a, a great chance of preparing well for games. And where do, you, where do you think you get your own drive from, Eddie? To, to keep going, keep having four hours sleep, moving countries, you know, putting so many hours in? Yeah, I just love the game, mate. I think when you love the game, it's easy. You know? And I don't feel I've ever worked a day in my life. Uh, the fact that I, I get the, the joy of being able to coach rugby um, to the, some of the best players in the world. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to get up and be excited about what's ahead. And just a final one, Eddie, because I've taken a lot of your time already. Um, what does the future hold for you? Your contract goes till August uh, 2021 with England. W- would you like to stay on after that? Uh, look, I'm not sure, mate, uh, is the honest answer. I, I want to make sure that every day I coach as well as I can. Um, and I saw a great quote, uh, quote from Pep about whether he was going to stay at Man City. I think it, in the end, the players decide not the coach. Yeah, if the players still want you to coach, they keep performing. Um, so to me, the players are always the most important consideration when you're looking at whether you're going to continue coaching or not, not yourself. Yeah, because if you're getting effort out of the players, they're playing with desire, they're playing with, you know, an enthusiasm, then, then you're doing a good job, then you should stay. If you're not getting that, then it's time to move on. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Eddie, and best of luck for the Six Nations. Good on you, Simon. Pleasure to talk to you, mate. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back in a few weeks' time for another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website or on Twitter, 
at ground underscore guru.